Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. Also happy to be your host for the Nashville Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Jesse Alquist. Jesse is a digital leadership educator discovering the intersection of digital communication technologies and leadership development. Jesse received her EDD from California Lutheran University doctoral program studying higher education leadership. Jesse's dissertation was on college student leaders and their behaviors and experiences with social media. She's an alumna of Northern Arizona University with a master's degree in counseling and holds undergraduate degrees from South Dakota State University where she double majored in sociology and human development and family studies. Currently, Jesse serves as an associate, a research associate instructor at Florida State University teaching undergraduate master's level courses. Her podcast, Josie and the Podcast, is featured by the Chronicle of Higher Education as a podcast to subscribe to. You can find her blogging and podcasting at www.josiealquist.com. Dr. Alquist is also a co-editor and author in uh, both recently published volumes of New Directions and Student Services, Engaging the the Digital Leadership Generation and New Directions in Student Leadership, Going Digital in Student Leadership. Welcome, Josie. Thank you for having me. Oh, very happy to, very happy to have, you, have you on. Um, I feel like uh, we're doing a, doing a cross-pod here, kind of. So, um, well, let's get started with our first segment, which is called Getting to Know Josie. So this segment is designed to help listeners understand you as a person, as a professional. Jesse, are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> are yes. you ready for this? <laughs> yes. Very exciting stuff. So you grew up in the second small state by population density, Wyoming. So what do you think was unique about coming of age there? Coming of age is a weird phrase. It makes it sound like a movie, but... It does. Well, my, my latest joke is, like, when I was younger, I have to say younger because not when I was littler because I hit my height at, like, sixth or seventh grade. So my eyes have always been at this level for, for quite a long time. That's another kind of unique mm-hmm. thing about me is my height. Um, growing up in Wyoming, it was awesome, but also at times just a little, like, uh, awkward um, because especially for for me I knew right away that I wasn't exactly a small town girl like I loved being able to see my family and and knowing every single person on my block who whenever I was like fundraising for band I think I probably like forced them all to tap into their early retirement just to like buy my chocolates and things <laughs> so mm-hmm. they would just they were like family like everyone on your street was just looking out for you um, and that was amazing but like there was no soccer team um, for girls in my town, so I had to b- play with boys my whole life, which gave mm-hmm. me like like this I don't know a little bit like a competitive edge. Like I, I had to like hustle really hard, basically since the age of four <laughs> to play soccer. I remember going to my mom and just crying. I think I was in. I was like six or seven. I was like, Mom, I'm so tired of just playing with boys. I want to play with girls. There was just not enough of us to play in the town, um, Newcastle, Wyoming. And now they actually have a soccer team, like, for girls and, you know, women all the way through high school. So, I mean, they're catching up, right? They're, they're doing their best. Um, the first thing that I get when any, anyone finds out that I'm from Wyoming, they give me, like, this, this like, awestruck look, like I'm part alien, potentially. 
And they're like, mm. well, I, I've never met anyone from Wyoming. I was like, well, hi. And I used to, like, they let us out once in a while, you know, like I submitted my application early on. Um, so <laughs> I still go back to visit. It's amazing. Um, my family come and visit me a lot. So. so you're saying you applied early decision to leave Wyoming? Is that is that the summary? <laughs> it was a pretty early decision. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So I know that I know that you like to stay active, and I know that you've recently shifted from marathons to triathlons. So what do you like what do you like about triathlons that is the about the experience of that that's different than doing a marathon? Uh, sign up for a very difficult race. And to me that was gonna mean I needed to train at least three months or more for it. So at twenty five and then at thirty I did a marathon. Um, and it just about proved, um, it definitely proved, like, that I was getting older. Like, I wouldn't be able to go to work for a couple of days. Like, I was just literally incapacitated. Like, my body was not made to run that far. So when I was thinking about turning 35 and just, like, how I was going to do these races every five years, um, I I biked growing up. You know, there's just so much wide open spaces in Wyoming. Um, I also swam because in Wyoming you do you could literally do every single sport and activity that you wanted to, and you'd be like the team captain. Um, so I also could swim. I was like, oh, I do all these different things, um, and so I decided that I would sign up for a triathlon and just fell in love with it. Like my road bike is my new like running used to kind of be like therapy and almost like like it was a little bit spiritual just being able to like check out and, and almost like meditate when I was running and now biking is another level to that because I'm also going like super fast on <laughs> my road bike. And the other super cool thing about triathlon, so I do the um, international or it's also called the Olympic um, dish, distance, which is a little bit further than like kind of these baby first ones that are called sprints, um, is that I can like – walk afterwards or even the next day like your body you're training the whole thing and so it, it's also kinder on uh, on your body so i have hope that i can do those for really decades to come hopefully hmm. okay so uh so let's transition to to where you currently live uh have a very serious question for you are yes. you afraid of california there was a time that I was afraid of California, which kind of goes against my whole, I knew I wasn't going to be living in small towns. I thought I'd probably end up like in Colorado, which was like, all right, like it's still kind of connected to Wyoming. So when I was growing up in the 80s, early 90s, a lot of stuff was happening, especially like in Los Angeles like, and the big state of California, like the major earthquakes and um, the riots. And so honestly, like it looked scary. <laughs> like if I did catch anything on the news, I was like, and I'm, and I had this theory that there was going to be an earthquake and California was going to slide off into the ocean. And I still potentially have that theory. And I'm just hoping I'm out of town for that. Um, so mm. it is, it is not as scary though. It, it, it wasn't a difficult town to move to as a new professional. We also didn't have like Uber or um, or like Google Maps, like I had to use what was called a Tomlinson guide to figure my way around the city um, <laughs> in my early 20s. Um, but now I taught. Um, oh, what guide? What is it called? Tomlinson? It's called a Tomlinson guide. It was like the gift that you would get 
from like if someone else you knew lived in LA. I think they were known in other cities and it was just like very detailed map of every little section of Los Angeles. And if you think it's dangerous to to look at your phone and drive, we would have to, if we got lost on a freeway or took the wrong exit or whatever, like you would flip through this and it was not small. Like it was a very large book. And I don't know, I got really good at it. Okay, so the Tunnelson Guide was this iconic map. And it was this like thick, wide, and somehow you were supposed to be able to use it while you were driving because especially in LA, you take the wrong exit or the wrong freeway and you know, you're going to end up in like a whole different neighborhood. Um, and it was just detailed maps of every little street and neighborhood and corner of Los Angeles. And it was like the must-have thing to have when you moved here. And it literally saved me a number of times. But it was so unsafe compared to like just looking on my phone. If I had to do one or the other driving in L.A. today, I, I would definitely look, look at my phone. And I know that's mm. but. Do you do you like that new feature on uh, the new iOS where they uh, the the drive the do not disturb while driving feature? My husband is that their biggest fan. Like every time we get in a car, he like squeals with delight. Like he loves it so much. Um, I'm like <laughs> indifferent. Like I think I think I have a stronger ability to like ignore notifications where. He, he's got this like reaction reactive need or he gets annoyed like he'll get really frustrated to see something um i think he also wants to create technologies where he could like play something in a meeting or like at the comedy club that we own and like just turn off all phones so i think he's going that direction with his need for tech, with his need for tech Oh, maybe you just need something to like really spin the room around in the comedy club to make the, you know to make everybody's uh, everybody's sensors pick up so everybody thinks that they're driving. That's that's what you need. Yeah. Oh, see, yeah, we could um, we could hack it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the move. Josie, what is the strangest thing you're watching on TV right now? Well, I am watching Stranger Things. And I'm going to try real hard not to give any spoiler alerts. Well, actually, I'm not going to talk about that show because I probably would give away a spoiler alert. Um, but The Strangest, i.e., uh, my guilty pleasure TV show is Married at First Sight. Um, it is when you literally show up at the, um, the aisle to get married and you've never seen this person before. Um, but here's the thing. I used to watch Bachelor and Bachelorette. And I think we all know at this point their success rate, if we're going to, like, really look at the numbers here, is pretty darn low. And I don't know. I just can't stomach those episodes anymore. And this show, actually, there's, like, four couples every season in different cities. And at least one or two make it. And I like those numbers. And um, so that's it's, – it's strange, but I love it. Um, so I'll, <laughs> I'll be watching the next season, I'm sure. So uh, uh, my, uh, our, our mutual friend and colleague, John Dugan, likes to talk about life-giving things, um, mm. so things in your life that, that give you life as opposed to taking that away. So, Josie, what gives you life? So when I talk to college students, and they are the hardest crowd that I have to get up in front of, like to win over and keep captivated, 
faculty are probably second on the list, um, but I love it. They are my favorite group to speak to no matter the topic. And what gives me life is when one or more of them come up to me afterwards um, saying like, oh, I was forced to come here for like extra credit or for my sorority. Um, you know, maybe the title of the talk made them feel like they were gonna, just going to get talked to or like told what to do or what not to do the whole time. And they just said like, you totally proved me wrong. Like, I absolutely love this. Um, and then they're like, are you on Instagram? I'll take a selfie. Like, being able to win students over like that with a topic that in the past they haven't had the greatest examples of like, wow, this could actually be fun and empowering, that gives me life. Cool. That's awesome. Um, so I know that you are officially trained in improv. Um, what have you learned from that process that's been beneficial in your day-to-day -day life? So I had mentioned that uh, we own a comedy club, and not just we, it's a group of um, friends who met in college, my husband and his friends at UMass Amherst. They developed a tour company, and then that turned into an actual club in Santa Monica called Westside Comedy. He would divorce me if I didn't put a plug in for it. There you go, Lloyd. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and it was about a number of years that they had been just day in and day out saying, Josie, you gotta, you got to take classes. And I was like, no, like, I don't want to like breach into the, hit what hit, he does. I do education and he does comedy. Like, let's keep them separate. But I was finding myself in the work that I was doing at the time, like a little burnt out, really never able to unplug. Um, and I just had kind of like this opening in my schedule before I started my doc program. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take one of these classes. And didn't really tell anybody. He knew um, that I was going to do it. And I just... I was just proven wrong in so many ways of because I was intimidated of it. I was like, I'm not really that funny, and I don't want to become a performer necessarily. Um, and I went through all six classes, and then they say you kind of graduate. Um, I met my best friend in the class, um, and I found not only do you have to put your phones away, but you really have to tap your mind into what it is that you're doing. If it's just a one-person scene or a group scene, you're listening. What they say is like saying yes to whatever your partner is proposing. And it was just very refreshing at the time for where I was in my professional life, but also taught me these really amazing skills, especially for me now as a speaker, that I tell everybody, no matter what they're doing, that improv is such a fantastic experience to go through. Um, if it's one course, if it's like the whole curriculum, if it's just a few exercises, I'm a big converted fan of him. Cool. Yeah, I really like that. Um, it's interesting, the phones away piece. I heard, um, I listened to, well, I know he's not necessarily like a pure improv person and didn't grow up in that world, but I listened to a podcast with Aziz and Zari right after the release of yeah. the second season of Master of None. And he talked about how, so before that season, he, like, actually went and lived in Modena, Italy. Um, yep. And, like, he himself was living there. And he said he wanted to get in a headspace where it felt like he was in the shower all the time. Um, you know, referring to, like, the sort of thinking that people do in the shower. I thought that that was really interesting. I've thought about huh. that a lot, like, how, how you would get in that headspace on a regular basis. So Yeah. Um, huh. Yeah. So, right. anywho. Um, okay, so... Uh, 
what this we ask everybody this question and I'm curious about your uh, your thoughts on it what is the best book about leadership okay so I don't think this is the very best book but it was a book that opened my eyes to both in the work that I do now and especially at the time like figuring out what my dissertation was going to be was um, Eric Quammen's text, Digital Leader. And it's written very much not for higher ed, like it's for corporate, and it's not theoretical. Uh, it's very, very much practical. But it's this approach to, well, what you're doing in these digital spaces can actually be through a lens of leadership. And it was a lot of case studies about, um, especially like within corporate uh, CEOs and executives, how they were so they were able to approach things like Twitter or a blog or YouTube um, again through this lens of leadership, and I got thinking about like, okay, I'm wanting to college to study how college students are experiencing social media, and I think I'd really like to study student leaders specifically. Um, and I was like, I think there's something here to say. Well, what is digital student leadership? What do student leaders that are thriving in digital spaces look like, just like these executives were like, can we teach that before they actually get in those, in those executive positions? Um, so again, it was just one of those turning point books for, for me that put me onto this whole new lens of leadership, and it's not just social media strategy um, that was really pivotal in my career. Awesome. All right, so for the last uh, question in the Getting to Know Josie segment, let's open up the Gripes tab here for a second. Let's uh, turn on that mental Excel doc of ours, Excel sheet, excuse me, and, uh, and let's open up the Gripes tab. Josie, can you tell us about being patted on the head? Oh, my gosh, y'all. Um, it should be a crime to pat someone on the head that is, like, above the age of six or seven. Um, especially if they are over 30. And I get, okay, so I am four foot ten. Like that is small in nature. And, how, and a number of people who I love or just colleagues or people that I don't even know, I know like physically I am close in proximity maybe to your elbow or to your hand. Um, don't pat me on the head. Don't put your elbow on my head. Like even my shoulder, I'm a little like, nah, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> like I'm not <laughs> like your, I'm not your like leaning pose. Um, so, and the other one that happens a lot is just people reacting to my height as if it was like just something. Again, like oh, you're from Wyoming, like almost in shock, right? I think because when people look at my Twitter profile or like my website, you just see my photo, you don't maybe see a full body. And they will say things like, oh, I thought you'd be taller. It's like, well, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> like, I pack a punch, I swear, like on stage, you'd never know my height. Uh, so I, I just laugh it off. But it's just interesting, like the height thing that we can make comments on or sometimes even like do physical gestures that um, that's my great. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it's the, it's the odd things. There are, like, very odd things in life that people feel like they can and cannot comment on. Um, yeah. And that's, a, that's a, an interesting one. Um, like, that has anything to do with your, uh, you know, with your capacity as a human being or, you know, anything like that. So. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well. Uh, Thera therapies help. 
I'm getting, I'm, I've embraced my <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. So let's, uh, so let's move on to our next segment, which is higher ed, two truths and a lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie. And Jesse, you're going to have to parse out the lie. The theme this time is controversial comments. Are you ready for your three options? Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay, great. So, uh, Kentucky Governor Mark, uh, Matt Bevin recently set off a controversy with this remark. If you're studying interpretive dance, God bless you, but there's not a lot of jobs right now in America looking for people with that as a skill set. Critics pointed out that Governor Bevin also received a degree in, in the humanities East Asian study from a private out-of-state institution. Professor Lee Bonner, who works at University of Kentucky and is, on, is one of the faculty members appointed to the Board of Trustees, responded by saying, I think they, being the governor's comments, show a lack of understanding of how innovation, creativity, and productivity are nurtured by faculty in an institute of higher education. Not everybody wants to go into a STEM field or engineering. So that's your first option, is uh, disparaging uh, remarks towards interpretive dance. Um, the next one is Des Moines Area Community College professor Jane Martino recently went viral. In the video, Professor Martino screams while jumping up and down, no pomegranates, say it, no pomegranates, no, 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 no pomegranates. Based on the clip, viewers assumed it was a classroom rule. However, per Professor Martino was providing a less of and negative reinforcement. So that's your next option, are pomegranates in Des Moines. And then the last option is that Ray Gasser, Director of Residence Education and Housing Services at Michigan State, recently, uh, recently sparked a protest among the RA staff on campus. Gasser was quoted in a floor meeting as calling the building in which they live a dorm. Weldon Wood, the head RA in the Brody neighborhood, authored an official petition for reconciliation. The opening lines from Wood's petition read, in every moment of every training we've been taught to believe this is a community. Director Gasser's alleged slip in word proves that this was a sham. A dorm is a building, a residence hall is a community. So those are your options. We have uh, disparaging remarks in Kentucky towards interpretive dance. We have pomegranates in Des Moines, and we have, uh, and we have uh, residence halls slash dorms and at Michigan State. Which one of those do you think is fake? So I did see this pomegranate video, and it was one, <laughs> I was almost like a clickbaity thing because you're like, wait, like this faculty member is freaking out, and then they had to like really come back in to like reinforce, like, oh, it was like to prove a point or whatever. But yeah, definitely saw that one. Um, I mean, interpretive dance. Just get out here to Los Angeles. There is all kinds of forms of entertainment that you can get paid to do. Um, Okay, I think I know Ray. I think so. I think that one is a lie, and this, I, that's my guess because I don't think he say that. Uh, you are correct. That is true. Okay. He did not refer. He did not refer to the building as a dorm. Uh, yeah, do that. Yeah. No, never, never, never. Never, um, never, never. <laughs> never, never, never. Yeah. Well, I, I have uh, since realized since writing that I think this pomegranate thing was a little too famous for uh, for uh, for um, this particular uh, for this particular game. But uh, the con governor of Kentucky did uh, did say that about interpretive dance. So, uh, which has joined a fairly long list of of, uh, of governors in, in the southern part of the United States making comments about different liberal arts degrees. He is he is oh. certainly not the only one. So, all right, no pomegranates. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I thought that that, I, you know, I thought that the, uh, 
I thought that the Michigan State one maybe could work, but uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, did not did not quite take. I liked it. I liked that you're that you believe that that was not true because you didn't believe that Ray would say that, uh, <laughs> as opposed to believing that that the RAs would actually petition for that. That was oh. a little different than I. That was a little different than uh, than I thought. Than I thought that that would. Uh, that would turn out. So, oh, I totally um, think I was I wasn't going to get that one right. So, I mean, just like I don't know, just like those types of tests. I'm like, I'm going to fail. <laughs> I'm going to choke. This is why I don't call into radio shows. You know, with like the timed answers to get concert tickets. I was like, no, I just won't. Anyway. <laughs> it's too stressful. Okay. All right. So let's move to our last segment, which is six big leadership questions. So, uh, so let's start here. Jesse, why do you believe student affairs practitioners, or excuse me, what do you believe student affairs practitioners don't understand about how our students are using social media? So I think we're getting a better idea about what they're actually using, like the most popular tools. We can, we're learning how we can listen and engage more on like Twitter or Instagram. What I don't think we have as good of a picture on is well, what is that experience really like in a youth, um, young adult perspective? Like I put myself in their shoes as much as possible when I think about my college days um, at South Dakota State versus today and the things that I got to do um, and live out and take photos of and go and experience um, and what they have to approach those potentially a little bit differently. And so I, I found, especially with like the student leaders that I've studied, is they have a love-hate relationship with social media. So we might make some assumptions that it's all love and addiction, and they're on their phones constantly, they can't put them down, they're taking selfies all the time, so they must be, um, you know, like have really high um, values of self or something. Um, but they actually have just as much, if not more, frustrations with, social media and technology as it relates to their own use, their peers, and even their friends, families, supervisors, faculty members. And I don't think we give the space for them to express that. We just, not, not all, but I don't think we realize what their gripes actually are, um, that we could um, then have some more empathy from, for where they've come from in their lives because they could have gotten on these tools like MySpace and AOL in fifth grade. And I don't know about you, but in fifth grade I was doing a whole lot of other things. Um, maybe some Oregon Trail. I don't know if Oregon Trail was out in fifth grade. Um, that <laughs> shaped their lives a lot differently than uh, a lot of us that, that actually work with them. So I don't think we realize how much more empowerment they need to not only have skills to unplug unwind, like we know mental health and stress and anxiety is at high, high levels. But right now, the only way we're really, I find, universally educating students to get off their phones is we shame them about, that, about it, or we just tell them what not to do um, about it. Or if it's about leadership, we give them a set of policies and guidelines about, well, as an RA, or as the student body president, or just a student of the community, these are the things you can't do with social media, and this is what you'll be held accountable for. And I come in and I say, 
okay, we know these things to be true, but what if you also looked at it this way through a lens of empowerment and implying your passion to your Instagram feed so it doesn't matter the likes that you get. It actually is a fuel for you um, and not just something that you get frustrated and fearful on. Um, so those are a few things. Um, and, there, and I think there's curriculum that we could be doing that's already built into leadership programs or student experiences that could start to chip away at some of this, um, the things that I'm finding. Cool. Um, all right, so I know that you instruct a leadership course at Florida State that's been an enriching project. What have you seen from students about the intersection of leadership and social media in that space? So uh, this is through the Leadership Learning Research Center. There's also a minor that falls under that, Dr. Kathy Guthrie. She found me from a blog post I wrote that a grad student sent to her. So this is also the power of like sharing our stories and sharing our expertise in the field because I was a doc student still. And what my blog post was about was I looked at the social change model and I said, huh, so this was created like late 90s, early 2000s. Social media is like hardly around. Those experiences weren't blended in probably to like how students were experiencing college life. So I remixed it. And so that's my approach is remixing leadership in the digital age. I take the social change model and I say, well, what does consciousness of self look like on Instagram? Or how are you showing your commitments on your Twitter feed? Or how can we imagine your commitments and um, citizenship if you were to start to create content through a podcast or um, a blog. So I push the theory in ways that it's never, never has been before. And so Kathy loved it so much she gave me a course and <laughs> told me to create curriculum on it. So I've been offering that um, for almost three years, all online. And this last year we have been researching it. So we've gone back through all their past papers and blogs and we've interviewed the students. Um, and, and it's all some of the most simple messages that they just haven't been connected to leadership or even at least in a positive way. Um, that the reason why I don't teach digital citizenship, which is very common in K-12, is it tends to be a bit more reactive and, um, you know, well, like it is, it's, it's definitely made for like a middle school audience, but it's not empowering them to like be, take these platforms to the next level, even though you might see issues happen um, on them, um, and actually work through some real issues they have with them to finally let their gripes come out. Um, I do experimental activities, like they have to unplug for two days, um, and I'm always surprised how much both they struggle and they actually find um, kind of like a beauty in it that they hadn't seen before um, in just trying to stay off social media. So we try to do uh, experimental things like that that get them looking at it in different ways. Okay. Um, all right, so I know that part of your research centers on how higher education executives are utilizing social media. So what, what mistakes do you see folks making at that level? Well, so number one is they just, they're not on social media at all, like a refusal. Uh, they don't see the value in it. The second is they're just a bulletin board. So they're just promoting. It's just outward facing. 
Um, the third would be there's no personality. So you can tell most likely it's not them running it. Um, it's maybe the communications um, division or maybe someone in their office. So it feels a bit um, like controlled. Um, and then the third one is they try to place demands of ROI that in social media, ROI has to be measured differently. Like you can't, it's much more difficult to say this tweet that I sent out was the reason why X student decided to enroll to my campus and now we have this money in the bank to prove why I should be on Twitter. Like the ROIs look much differently. And I actually just released a blog this morning on 25 higher ed presidents to follow on Twitter. And so what I suggest, mm -hmm. especially to executives, is just go follow people at your positions who are actually kind of doing, doing it well. Um, they're engaging. They're connecting with students. They're not just the bulletin boards. They're in the, it's, it's a lot of what I love about especially uh, university presidents, it's really a day in the life from selfies with students to celebrating some award that they just got, um, but also maybe reacting to something in the news. And you can actually tell it's their real and authentic opinion. Um, and I see vice presidents and student affairs and enrollment managers doing this too, um, that, that students not only love to like really connect authentically with one of their leaders on campus, but um, alumni, community members, I find them all really rallying around these executive pages if they're done in a really, um, honestly, like just real way, like almost like not taking the platforms too seriously. Um, those are the ones that I love to feature. Cool. Um, all right. How, uh, how can practitioners promote leadership via their online outlets? So it's a lot of the same message that I would give to students in my course is looking at, and, and I still get the same question no matter where I go, like as a professional in higher ed, uh, we obviously wear a lot of hats. We work with a multiple different audiences, students, parents, alumni. Um, should I have one Facebook page or two? Like, should I put my Twitter account on private? Like, those debates continue to live on, which, which really honestly surprises me, but I guess it doesn't because these platforms place all people in, a, in almost like a conflicting position because they are meant to be social. However, over time, they have crept into all niches of our lives. And for some individuals who used to separate work from home, this could be a quite significant stretch, almost something that's quite uncomfortable and almost against maybe even their values. Uh, and that's, again, maybe where some executives might struggle with. Um, so I say, well, wh whoever you choose to connect with, um, you actually could enact leadership and, and like the social, media, social change model says positive social change. Um, if you were to look at your pages through a lens of am I displaying my values, like what's core important to me and my identity um, and, and the ethical framework that I have for my life, could I find that in the way that I use Twitter? Um, is my personality present? You know, like on Twitter, like, it's meant to have personality. That's why, you know, like we can blend in these these videos and these uh, emojis because that's what Twitter is built from. But I see so many pages that are just really like cookie cutter, copy and paste. 
Uh, and then again, are you expressing your passions in there too? People want to connect with people on social media who are real. Um, and that's also where you're, you'll find your communities is you'll find individuals that have those joint passions and maybe appreciate your quirky personality or not. Um, but again, for those that maybe haven't dabbled in that type of expression before, that could be something that's um, maybe a bit more out of their comfort zone. Um, but those would be a few things for me to suggest to you. Okay, great. All right, and so for our last question, something that I've, uh, that I've um, thought about a fair amount, and I'm, I'm really curious about your thoughts on, do you believe that advocacy on social media is a form of leadership? So yes, but it's not the end all. It's an expression of technology and social media is a tool, but it is in the toolkit, and it is not the check mark to say we have done this thing. Now, of course, like there's viral videos that can spread messages more quickly or hashtags that build movements like you could even look at Me Too both on Twitter and on Facebook. You can search those to see the power of a message that is more significant than just one voice to realize like, well, there is a very significant issue here. Um, what I think, instead of asking that question, Again, I pull back to say, well, let's look at the messaging we're already giving students and, um, or even staff and, and how, we, how we view social, how we view social activism, social justice, because what I find and what, I, what I've asked in research, when I ask students, would you want to use social media for activism or like just causes? they're quite hesitant, and, and especially if they're in a leadership position, um, they, they don't see the benefits that aren't going to move beyond conflict because sometimes it's the guidelines the university has given them, that they're like a representative of the university, so they, they, they feel like they can't say certain things anymore. And they've also experienced conflict in the past, especially if they said something they believed in on Facebook, um, maybe someone from back home or even their family um, went up against them. However, I believe uh, like we would want students to elevate their voices on things that were important to them no matter what, if it was really rooted in their true beliefs. So instead of where I see shaming students about slacktivism, I think we need to spend more of our time thinking about how we can show them examples of how it actually can be used, and especially those that are um, college age or young adults that are using these tools that actually do enact change and it doesn't just happen online um, instead of just saying, well, actually, no, that doesn't, that doesn't count. But then if they aren't active and they're like, well, we have no students that are actually using this hashtag or they're sharing this stuff on Facebook, then we still get frustrated. Um, so I think we need to bring it back to, again, like things like I teach in my course, just building up the curriculum. So honestly, like, we have to give them confidence, again, to be active in some digital spaces and real examples of ways they can do it. Okay. Great. Well, that is, that is it. So thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Jesse Alquist, a tremendous resource in the field of higher education. You, connect, you can connect with Josie on Twitter, at Josie Alquist, or at her website, which is JosieAlquist.com. And also, please check out uh, Josie's podcast, which is, uh, which is a tremendous hit. 
and is super fun, Josie and the podcast. And you can also get more information about the Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash lead, on Twitter at, at NASA SLPKC, or on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your pro- programs. So please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Josie, thanks so much. Thank you.